Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Michael Frankel is the founder and managing partner of Trajectory Capital. He has held C-level executive roles, corporate development and strategy, innovation, CFO, COO, at large and small growth companies. He's a corporate development, innovation, strategy, and corporate venture leader who has driven disruptive innovation and aggressive growth expansion at global technology, information services, and professional services companies, including Deloitte, LexisNexis Group, IRI, GE Capital, and VeriSign. He has a track record of executing growth strategies using acquisitions, 115, 120 of those, uh, new offering product development, innovation, complex ecosystems, including alliances, code development, licensing, partnerships, marketing and geographic expansion, corporate venture investments. I mean, listen, I can go on and on. His full bio is going to be in the show notes, but this guy has seen deals from every single perspective that you possibly can as a as a lawyer through an accounting consulting firm, as a at big firms doing acquisitions, his own sale of his own small firm at tech companies, you name it. So I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So listen, before we get into that <laughs> wide range of backgrounds and services and the different kinds of deals that you've done, Michael, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I, I'm pretty sure that being a deal maker from all these perspectives probably wasn't it at that time, or maybe not from any of these perspectives <laughs> was it at that time, but you tell me. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't understand this world. I'm not sure. I think the closest thing I had to a aspiration was probably to be a lawyer because my mother was a lawyer and a law professor. But I, I, I think if you'd asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I'd say I want to do something really big and important. I think I always had this sense that I wanted to change stuff. And, and so I think that's part of what appeals to me about deal making is it's almost a cheat, right? You get, to, it's almost like a cheat code. You get to have this really oversized impact by virtue of the fact that you're like transacting. And so the, I, I think that's, I think that's the string back to when I was 10 years old. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I like that change stuff. Yeah. And I like that thread. I mean, yeah. I mean, listen. You do a deal, it changes stuff. Yeah. Oh, hopefully it's a good deal for the better, but if it's a bad deal, it changes stuff in a bad way, right? Exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. One more question thinking back. What was the first deal of any type that you did? It could have been something early in your career, maybe even earlier as you know, as, as a younger person. Anything that was a deal. Yeah. So the, the first deal that I can remember doing was my first job out of college. And and I'm not even sure, you know, you can decide to call it a deal, but it was it was my first experience with how a transaction can make a radical change. Okay. And it was incredibly cool. I was, you know, 
snot-nosed kid who knew nothing, but somehow ended up working for the chief operating officer of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And at that time, there were a whole bunch of exchanges in other markets that were coming to the CME and saying, can you help us learn how to do what you do? Mm -hmm. And I got sent down to Panama right after the U.S. invasion, if you remember, and I got to meet with the senior people in the finance ministry who were trying to figure out how to have a futures exchange. Mm -hmm. And they wanted us to advise them and they wanted us to help them. And we ended up structuring a, a, a consulting deal and sort of a relationship between the two exchanges. But I just remember thinking, wow, this is incredibly cool. There's going to be something here in a year that wasn't here before. And, yeah. and then you have all the trickle down effects of a, you know, if you have an exchange, it's going to make the market more efficient. It's going to make the economy stronger. And, and so I just, I, I, I came away from that going, wow, I had, I had, my fingerprint was on something really big and important. I love that. You know, so it's interesting because I think, you know, a lot of our talk today is going to be focused on the M&A side because that's the, the main part of what you've done from all these perspectives. But this deal that you just described, right? Some sort of strategic alliance or consulting arrangement or, and, and your bio mentions licensing and partnerships and things like that. So I actually want to talk about the non-M&A side for a moment. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because when people think about deals, they often only think about M&A or maybe capital raising as well, right? And one of the things we've done, we and we talk about plenty of M&A and we will today, and we talk about plenty of people who invest or raise capital and you invest as well. But one of the things that's different about this podcast is that we don't only talk about those things. We're not just an M&A podcast. We talk about all kinds of deals. And I like the stress that there's opportunities in licensing and partnerships and strategic alliances and joint ventures. And so let's, let's just highlight those a little bit, you know, talk a little bit about those kind of deals that you've been involved in and how they've helped a company, uh, you know, grow and succeed. Yeah. So, so I'm so glad you said this and actually I've, I've written three books on, on deal-making and I try to use the term strategic transactions because in my mind, there is no hard line between all the different transactions you talked about in M&A, right? Yeah. I would put them all in the category of they are unusual game-changing transactions as opposed to, you know, licensing a copying machine or doing a standard customer contract. Right. But I, I don't see them as being any different. In fact, my view is the way you start the conversation with your business or your client or your portfolio company is what are we trying to achieve, right? Because a deal for deal's sake is a terrible idea. Yes. I mean, no offense, but you spend money with lawyers and you spend money and you distract your team. So I always start from the reverse, which is what are we trying to accomplish as a business? We want to have a new product. We want to expand into a new market. We, we need a new technology. And then you go, okay, you want that. What are the different ways you can get it? Well, we could license the tech. We could do a joint venture for the tech. We could just buy it on the open market. We could build it ourselves hire people, we could acquire a company, but you start with what is it, what's, what's going to bring, you know, it all comes back to revenue and profit. What's going to bring revenue and profit to your business. Therefore, what do you need? Therefore, what's the right, and this is where you go talk to your lawyer and you go, what's the right structure to accomplish it. And that leads you then to whichever form of deal you go. And, and there's a bunch of variables to it, right? Which is, you know, as an example, if I take technology, do I need exclusive ownership of it or do I mind if other people have it? Do I need to have control over the tweaking of it and the development of it? 
Do I care that it's a brand that I own? You know, all that stuff will start to guide you down the pipe toward, oh, I should just do a license or, oh, I need to do an acquisition because I need to make sure my, my competitor doesn't have this cool thing that I discovered. So yes, I've done a number of deals like that, that I think are really seismic. I'll give you one example, setting aside the company names because obviously confidential, but sure. I was part of a large company that had one part of a market. Well, I can tell you it's sort of the non-regulated life sciences market. So all the over the counter, you know, aspirin. And there was another company that only had the prescription market. Yeah. And we got together and said, well, our clients actually want both of them, right? The example I always give is before it was available, non-prescription is Nexium and Tums. Yep. Well, same customers probably bouncing back and forth. I, you know, the Nexium guy wants to know about the Tums sale and the other way around. And so we did a joint venture where we merged our products together and created a lot of clients loved it because it created a lot of value for them. It differentiated us from everybody else, right? I don't, I don't want to sort out two totally different views of the market. I want one view of the market. And so that was, I loved that deal. And that, that was a deal where it was definitely not an M&A deal, yep. but where, you know, you figured out how one plus one equals three. And then of course there's some, there's always going to be some wrestling between the parties over value. But if you create more value by doing the transaction, then there's always a solution, right? If, if you, if you have five bucks and I have five bucks and we work together, we're going to make 15. I don't know which one of us is going to get seven and which one of us is going to get eight, but we're both going to be better off. That's right. That's right. You know, it's so fun. I mean, deal quest community, anybody who's listened to this podcast, what Michael is saying will ring very, very familiar with you because you've heard it out of my mouth, right? Uh, this whole thing about, Hey, don't worry about structure. You know, yeah. this, what are the business objectives? Like, where are you now? Where do you want to get to? And, and then even, you know, one of the things I often say, Michael, is that I'm, and I don't say this in a way to criticize people. I say, I, I say this in a way to have people recognize the gap and the opportunity that they're missing out on. Cause I can't tell you how many people come to me, entrepreneurs, small businesses, medium businesses, even larger businesses who they're trying to achieve an objective through organic growth, right? They want to get into a new market, new product line, new, any of these things you're talking about. And they're having trouble, right? Penetrating that market. And I asked them, just the question, who has access to that market, that geography, that customer, that demographic, whatever it is, and have you thought about doing some sort of deal with them? And the answer is often no, or yeah, I, I thought about it, but you know, I, we, we're not in a position to acquire anybody. Well, okay, there are other ways you can do it. Or, you know, they're a competitor. Well, many people I know have done amazing deals with competitors. I mean, you can look at Tums and Nexiums as competitors, and right? Yeah. But yeah. they did a deal together. You know, so for me, the First thing that that often that comes up in is this concept that I often talk about of the mindset of a deal maker, yeah. right? Because you don't have to understand the details about the structure. You don't. I mean, there's many ways that that deal could have been done, right? One company could have acquired the other. They did a joint venture. They could that and joint ventures could be done many ways, right? Contractual. Yeah. They could have set up a separate company. They could have just had some cross marketing strategic arrangement, right? Got Forget it. how you know you do it. The first thing is to recognize to say, hey. Wait a second, Tom's and Nexium, like we should probably do something together, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And what's interesting is I think I've experienced this from the other direction. So you're talking about people who don't even consider a transaction as a tool to organic growth. I, I've experienced the opposite, which is, you know, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Right. Leader, leaders are coming and go, we got to buy something or we have to do a joint. This is the one that drives me the most nuts. We have to do a joint venture. 
And as a lawyer, you know, a joint venture is a complicated thing to get into, and it's an even more complicated thing to get out of. And so I always start with transaction as a tool. Let's also use the least complicated version of that, right? So do you really need a joint venture or are you really saying you just need to license their technology? Or you need to have like some kind of co-development agreement. And M&A, it's ironic. I've, I've been the M&A leader for a bunch of companies, but I'm the first one to go, are you sure we need to buy this? Because there is definitely a perception among non-deal makers that doing a deal is easier and less risky than it really is. Mm-hmm. And so you'll often get a GM who, frankly, I think in the back of their minds is thinking M&A is an easier way for me to do this. Wow. You know, entering that new market, hiring all those new people, figuring out a new product, that's a lot of work. Why don't we just buy something and it'll magically slot in? And the reality is, no, it's going to, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And if you don't integrate it well, you'll destroy the value that you, that you have. And we've seen some cases in the news over the last couple of years. If you don't do thorough due diligence, you won't get what you want. So I think of it like a toolkit. I, I just moved into a new house. And I'm the guy in the family who's putting things up and repairing things. And, you know, you go in your toolkit, you figure out, is the hammer the right tool for this? Or is it a screwdriver? And so I think the same thing is true with strategic transactions. They're an amazing tool when you use them the right way, and they can create huge damage when you use them wrong. Yeah, no question about it. And listen, you know, don't get me wrong. For most high growth companies, or for many, M&A is an important tool, and it it may be, you know, the most popular way to do things, but... I like that analogy as well, that, you know, the hammer and the nail, you know, right. If the, if the nail is M&A, well, no, there are other types of nails out there, right. And there are other types of hammers out there, right. So you don't want to be defaulting one, you you know, you want to have that mindset of thinking of some sort of transaction as opposed to just trying to always build it or, or, or market it or sell to it yourself. But at the same time, you don't want to just have one way to do it. And that's why if you surround yourselves and, you know, I don't talk about this a lot, you know, because it's not, I'm not looking to just pitch me, but it's, it's, it's not just lawyers and accounts, investment bankers, consultants, whoever it is, it, it, having the right team around you yeah. who is going to work from the point of where you're at, look at the objectives you want to achieve and then help you find creative ways to get there. Whatever that happens to look like, yep. you know, is, is, is so crucial. I, um, I totally agree. Right. And, and the one other thing I'd say on that is prepping yourself for your conversation with your advisors mm-hmm. is hugely important, right? Because the first thing they're going to ask you is, okay, why are you doing this deal? What are you trying to get out of this deal? What's important to you about this deal? What's not important, right? Yeah. Do, do, I, do I need to get reps and warranties on the tech? Or are you going to throw the tech in the garbage? Or, you know, are you, are you going to keep the brand? In which case, we better protect your IP or you don't care about the brand. So having that internal conversation about why am I doing this? What do, what's really important about it? Why do I think m is the right tool is critical to getting the most value out of your legal counsel, out of your banker. Because otherwise, if you just come and go, I want to buy this thing, I can't tell you why, and I can't tell you what my alternatives are. It's going to be a lot harder for those advisors to like do their job. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. All right. You know, as, as I alluded to in the, in the, in the bio and my commentary on it, you have just have a very unique situation in that the number of different perspectives that you've been in, in terms of the deal market, right? Lawyer at, a, at an accounting consulting firm in big companies doing their corporate development and deal and deal work, having your own smaller company and selling it. So being a seller on and on. So let's see. I think the way I want to enter this is as you moved through these different roles, right? 
I found in my life in various things, when you're on one side of the table or one aspect of, of the deal, you have a certain perspective of not only that, you know, of deals, right? But then when you move into other roles, right, you, you know, you, you get these different perspectives. So I think where I want to start is what was your sort of perspective on certain things on deals early on? And, and when you got to different roles on the table, what, what did you realize that maybe you hadn't realized when you were, let's say, a lawyer? Because I, yeah. I think that's where you started out, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and it's, it's a really important point. I think I recreated myself a bunch of times because I had a series of experiences where I go, wow, I was an idiot before. But yeah, I'd say, you know, when I was a lawyer, it was all about mechanics and not about business purpose. And, and that's actually part of the reason that I, I wanted to move out of, of practicing M&A law because I loved certain parts of it, but I was always fascinated by the, why did they decide to do it at the beginning? Yeah. And what are they going to do with it afterwards? And what are the financial drivers for it? Um, and, and that was just not my job. So, you know, my first view of M&A was it's this complex, intricate, interesting mechanical exercise mm -hmm. with a lot of like, what's the downside? What's the downside? How do we protect against the downside? Moved into banking. And I, I sort of got exposed to the financial reasons that you're doing this, right? Oh, one plus one equals three. They're going to make money. They're going to cut costs because we had to model it all out. But what I would say is as a banker, and there's a great war story I can share about this as a banker, I thought neither about the strategy that drove you to want to do a deal and whether it was a good idea to do a deal to address that strategy, nor how you make this all come true afterwards, right? We would build financial projections and, you know, oh, this is what's going to happen over the next five years. That's the basis of the deal. We close the deal, at which point I would design my deal toy and I would go, yay, and I'd move on. And that was part of the reason that I wanted to move in corporate is I was actually really interested in the before and the after, which as a banker is just not your job. Right, right. No, 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 no financial projection or spreadsheet or model is going to show the difficulty in integrating the cultures, the two cultures of the different companies or yeah. how the technology, even how the technology integration may get screwed up, you know, and cause problems or whatever Absolutely. it is. Right? Well, it's, there's a World War II quote, and I can't remember from whom, but my argument would be no financial projection survives the first moment of integration, yeah. right? Yeah. It's inaccurate day two after you do the deal. And, and here's my great learning horror story experience. So Early on in my first corporate development role, you know, and I, I thought I was, you know, really smart. I'd come off of Wall Street. I'm a deal guy. And we did this deal and it was a very relatively small 50 person technology company. Yep. And the core of what they did was number one, heavily regulated. So, which is important because it means clients could leave whenever they wanted. You couldn't yep. lock the clients in. Yep. And secondly, it was all about customer service. It was all yep. about call, you call in, there's a team that helps you with your technology problem. We bought the business. I congratulated myself. I said, wow, I'm a great deal guy. And I went off to think about the deal Twix. And about two months later, I called the GM of the, of the division that had bought it and said, how's that deal going? And he said, oh yeah, we should probably do something there. And I said, what? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, we haven't, we, we've been too busy with it. It was a hot market. We've been too busy with other stuff. Well, the short version is we closed the deal and we only did two things. We sent an email to every customer saying, congratulations, we're now your, your vendor. And we sent an email to every employee saying, you're now employed by us. Nothing else. 
Well, here's what happened next. Every employee said, wait a second, do I have a job? Do I not have a job? Do I have benefits? Do I not have benefits? Remember I said it was a hot market, but 40% of them just left. left. They took a, nobody, nobody came to them. So after the first three weeks, they just walked out the door, took other jobs. Second thing that happened was all those clients that got the email decided to call their customer service rep and go, what's, what's the deal with this, right? Is this good? Are you still my, and those phones went unanswered because all those people walked out the door. Right. Right. We lost about 40% of the revenue of the company in two months. And, and I always say, but for one airplane ticket, 50 polo shirts and 10 pizzas, that wouldn't have happened. If somebody had just flown out the first day and said, Hey, have a shirt, have a shirt, have a shirt. Everything's going to be great. We really value you. You all have jobs. You're yeah. Just keep at it. Excited to have you on board. There'll be really good news coming. Yeah. And so it was an amazing learning for me that, wait a second, the, the end of the deal is the start of the process mm. and what you do with the business, whether you integrate it, whether you, whether you do all these things you've talked about, launch the product, train your sales team, you know, all of that stuff. If you don't do that, yay deal turns out to be a horrible mistake. So I, I sort of evolved my learning there. And then, you know, as I, as I sat on the seller side, I, I understood the reality more of how invasive a diligence process is. Cause as a large corporate, you go, here's my 10 page list. Please send me all this stuff, put it in a data room. Right. I'd never been in a small company environment to understand exactly how unprepared they are. Right. They oh, don't yeah. have this all documented. It's, this is not GE. We don't have, you know, everything in a playbook and, and, and how scary it is and how uncertain they are about the process. Cause again, if you're an inquisitive organization, everyone's like, oh yeah, we get MA. We do MA all the time. If you're the seller, you probably never do. This is a one-time, it's the old chicken and pig thing, right? The chicken is engaged in breakfast. The pig is committed to breakfast. Well, you know, the buyer is engaged in this process, but it's one of 20 that they're doing. For the seller, this is like the one thing they do. You know, and then I started to sort of understand more about the investor's point of view in my role now, where you have to think about what's the likely outcome what are the different kinds of outcomes? How do you prepare for them and the time value of money, right? You know, this is always when, when you're, when you're doing an M&A transaction, this is always the question as well. We're growing. Could, shouldn't we stick around for a couple more years and grow more? When is the right time to sell? And a lot of that, if you're an investor, you're really thinking about because, you know, another two years means it's got to be not a slightly better deal. It's got to be a materially better deal. So yeah. I sort of think over the course of my career, and, and the one other thing I'll say is, I think having all these jobs, because at the end of the day, these transactions are still a group of humans interacting with each other who all have a certain kind of training, a certain mindset, a certain bias, a certain emotional state. I think having sat in all the chairs allows me to be more empathetic towards everyone, right? Like yeah. I understand what the lawyer is going through and the fact that even though no one cares about the reps and warranties, they're actually really important. And they're just trying to extract what they need to get their job done, you know, and protect us. I, I understand the scared founder, buyer, a seller, who this is their life's work. And so I think it helps me, I think just being empathetic to the other people sitting around the table makes you a better deal maker, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
No question. And that's why I wanted to enter the conversation through that, because many folks don't have that perspective. I mean, those different perspectives like you do. I mean, I certainly don't have the breadth of all those perspectives that you do, but I feel fortunate in that, you know, unlike a lot of lawyers, I, I've been an entrepreneur since I'm 15. I was literally run, running a business with employees. Well, let's yeah. call them contractors. I w- wasn't withholding taxes, but, uh, you know, when I was 15, so I have that entrepreneurial experience. I've, I, I've raised capital, you know, in, in some real estate funds I put together. I, you know, I've, I've put deals together on my own. Um, but still, I, you know, there are, there are on seats, you know, that I've, that I've sat in, but understanding those different perspectives is crucial to get a deal done. I, I often, you know, you alluded to it on the lawyer side. Yeah. You know, we, we are so trained to be over indexed on risk and listen, risk mitigation, making, making knowing risk choices as opposed to getting blindsided. That's all absolutely crucial. Yeah. It's just that, you know, in law, in law school, I say this very often, we don't read about anything that went well. Because there's no cases on it, right? Yeah. All we do is spend time on the stuff that went bad because we we study cases, right? Yep. So you know, so, so I think that's some of our colleagues have some issues with that, where they don't understand that first of all, being successful in business takes risk taking, but and you got to balance the risk mitigation, all kinds of stuff against the the upside opportunity, and do that in a way that's maybe more nuanced. At the same time, so yeah, similar with the finance folks, right? You know, I mean, they're, they'll look, you know, looking at the numbers and figure it out and, and brilliant people and doing a great job in analyzing the numbers. And it's important. But if you only look at it from that perspective, there are many deals that make sense on paper, but are going to be a disaster in reality. Exactly. And then, and then frankly, there is some, maybe a, a smaller percentage, but there are some deals that actually may not look great on paper, but could be great because the whole reason you're doing the deal is because you think one plus one could equal three, four or five. Not because not because anything that either company is doing now, but because yeah. the new opportunity out of the synergy and, and you know and and historical financials are not going to show that. And frankly, it's even tough to model on a oh, performer yeah. basis. I actually have a great example of that. I once bought a company, and the core business was about twelve million dollars, and we thought we could probably grow it to fifteen twenty million dollars. But what wasn't in the financial model, and we found a way to gen it in, but it was sort of a guesstimate was. This company had, it was a tiny little product, but it was the only one out there. And so while the revenue from the direct product was going to be pretty small, we bundled our product as did our competitor. And we thought we could win more business because we would have it and they wouldn't. So, you know, as an example for any individual client, this was probably a $20,000 a year contract. Yeah, but we would bundle it inside a three million dollar year contract. So if I win a few more of those three million dollar year contract because I have this little thing, right? It pays for itself. Yeah. And so we had to think about how do you explain that value that has nothing to do with how much of this thing we sell. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a great example. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So, I want to delve into a second. I'm going to obviously want to get to what you're doing now and, and what, what you invest in and that kind of stuff. But I want to delve into a second into your experience as a seller, mm-hmm. because I think out of all these different roles, 
there's something materially different when you are the owner of the company and you are selling. You alluded it to you know before a little bit, talking about that founder role and it's your baby and that kind of stuff. Obviously, you had the advantage of having these other roles before that, some of them. So you had a perspective that a lot of sellers don't have, right? Yeah. But I still think there's, you know, one of the things I talk about, for example, in my negotiating book is just not directly on the point, but it's an analogy is I have a whole philosophy and approach. I do trainings on negotiating. I negotiate every day. I do deals for other people. I negotiate people in very tough, maybe conflict situations. We don't litigate, but we negotiate, you know, resolutions of those things sometimes. And I have negotiated my own deals, you know, real estate investment deals, you know, all kinds of stuff. But in the Great Recession, I tell, I won't go into the whole story. I've told it before, but, you know, there were no deals going on. My revenue was down 30, 40, 50 grand a month before I knew it. You know, mm-hmm. I ran into financial trouble during the, the Great Recession, 2009. And I talk about how transformative that was for me and having to apply all these principles that I applied for other folks and for me when deals were going well yep. to a situation when it really, really was personal and really counted, right? Like, this is my family. This is my employees. This is my ability to make payroll. This was, you know, whether I was going to declare bankruptcy or, or short sale my, my, my lake house, right? And, you know, who I was as a person right now, obviously that's a much more challenging situation than maybe making a decision on what you're selling your company, but there still is a difference when it's more personal to you. I, I, I totally agree. Although here's what I would say, even corporate sellers, I think what people don't understand is there are always non-financial variables. And in fact, this is what I love about M&A. There are always non-financial variables that a seller is thinking about. And this is one of the reasons as a buyer, I try to, I'm going to use my nerdy legal term. I try to voir dire a seller before we get into it to really understand what does Corey want, right? Like, okay, of course he wants purchase price. Fair. But let me see if I can find other stuff he wants. And the best thing in the world is when you find stuff the seller wants that is costless to give them. Or the flip side is if you're the seller to find stuff the buyer wants that doesn't make any difference. And so, yeah, from from a seller perspective, and I find it, it tends to be more true from a seller perspective. As a seller, I want price, but I usually have a stack of other things I care about. I care about what you're going to do with my employees. I care about what you're going to do with my brand. I care about how long you want me to stick around and what job you're giving me. I I care about the future of my business and whether you're going to sort of blow it up into something really big. You know, I care about how much risk is associated with the earnout and how much control I'm going to, this is why earnouts get, you know this better than I do, why earnouts get all squirrely is, okay, it's going to be based on these variables, but how much control are you taking away from me? Right. To be able to influence this. Right, right. right. I, I, I got two or three years where I have back-end money, but I only want to stay on for a year. Or maybe I want to stay on for longer, but you can fire me in that time, and now I can't protect my earnout. You know, there's a million, yeah. You know. Exactly, yeah. And and how self-aware am I about what I really want, right? Do I fool myself into thinking, I'd love to work in your large corporation, in your ridiculous bureaucracy with your TPS cover sheets, and then by the end of year one, um, I've seen founders who have walked away from part of the earnout because they just couldn't stand to be in it. They thought they would be good in a large company. And then right. I've seen other founders who stayed in the, I, I know one founder was acquired into a prior company. He's been there 10 years now. He just loves it. He's like, damn, this is great. I have all these resources. So yeah, I think that the, especially the seller set of priorities is a lot more robust and complex. 
And the other thing I'd say is underlying risk, right? If you start a certainty of close is a really big variable. Because if I start a purchase process and I walk away, no one cares. Maybe there's a GM who's frustrated because I really was excited to buy this. If I start a sale process, I risk damaging my customer relationships, my market brand, my employees freak out, all that kind of stuff. So certainty of close is this weird variable. I can't attach a dollar amount to it, but it's super important. So yeah, I think that understanding sellers and not just understanding, this is where I think your job becomes really interesting. Helping sellers understand themselves, right? What do you really want out of this? Let me, let me throw out a bunch of things that are going to hit you as you sell your business. How do you feel about these things? Right. And helping them sort of being their therapist and helping them to, and that usually falls to the lawyer, sometimes to the banker, but somebody's got to sort of like advise them. Because as I said earlier, one of the fundamental differences is buyers buy repeatedly. Yep. Sellers have either never sold before, or maybe they've sold before like once or twice. So it's not what they do on a day on a, you know, a corporate development officer on a day-to-day basis. I do this all day long. If I'm this, if I'm a founder of a company, I spend no time thinking about the sale process. And, and the other thing I'll point out is corporate sellers. People think of corporate sellers as being sort of very mechanical. I don't think they are as somebody who's divested at the corporate level. We have just the same range of non-financial. Maybe we don't have as much of an emotional commitment to the brand, although even there we sometimes do. But as a corporate seller, I was worried about, yeah, I was worried about purchase price. Although if the deal was small enough, I actually didn't care that much about purchase price. In the, in the grands, if I'm a $20 billion company and this is a $4 million sale, do I really care if I get 4 million or 5 million? No. What I, what I probably care about more is, are you going to damage my brand? Are you going to need to use my brand? Maybe I don't want you touching my brand. Are you going to damage my clients? I always love to remind people of this. When you sell a, a business unit, the clients that were already sold the offering are not going to go, oh, I understand you sold that business unit. Therefore, if the product goes to crap or if the yeah, service It's not, not going to reflect on your reputation. I can fully separate it. That's no. right. Yeah, no, they're not. They're going to... So how are you going to treat my clients? Employees, right? The, they talk to each other. They, the fact that they suddenly are two different organizations. So if you treat them horribly, it's going to come back to my employees. So there are all these other... One of the goofy ones is transition services, right? Where... Either the parent company, and and I've seen both ways, goes, we want a clean break. I don't want anything to do with this company. Take it, go away, whatever it is, it's your problem. We're going to minimize those transition services to as low as possible. I've seen other companies go, wait a second, that's a revenue stream for me. Yeah, I'll be your back office finance. You can continue to use my CRM system. You know, you can license my data. And that's just 100% margin revenue for me. So let's do that for a long time. In fact, I care more about that. I care about purchase price, right? Like, you know, great. You've, you've created a revenue stream for me. I don't care about the balance sheet. So yeah, I think the, I mean, I could go on about this, but I think the seller perspective is in some ways a lot more interesting than the buyer perspective, especially when you get to negotiation of terms, because there's all this other stuff that cares about. I'll leave you with the last like example of this. I swear I'm not making this up. Founder-owned business, founder-owned the majority of it. We were buying it for $350 million. Mm-hmm. One of the terms that had to be negotiated into the deal was, and the lawyer was embarrassed when he brought this up, but he was like, client wants it. Founder gets to keep his BlackBerry. 
because the three hundred and fifty million dollars doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't couldn't go buy another BlackBerry. He was like, and so it was actually a term in this three hundred fifty million dollar deal. So that funny. he get to keep the the the, the like plastic device. You know, it, it's interesting, and I want to talk about the vestuses a, a little more. But going back to you talked about self awareness of a seller, and and you know, and and sometimes a lawyer or the bank has to be a th- more of a therapist. And you know, it, it's something people have heard me talk about on this podcast before, and sometimes. You know, there's one example I've given in the past where we were on the other side of the transaction, right? And, you know, sometimes you do, you're working on a deal, especially if they're, you know, if it's a founder-driven company with more emotion involved, whatever, and everything should be fine, right? The LOI has been signed, the, 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 the fundamental economic deal has been cut, there's good reason to do the deal, you know, the seller seems ready to go, but then the deal just starts either slowing down or there's pro- whatever, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And a lot of times, especially with, you know, with founder sellers or people who've been in the company for a long time, you know, they, they're getting cold feet for some reason. And it's not always, it's not math logical, not in any way. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the examples I've given in the past is that I sensed this on, on one of the deals. It was just like that could easily just go downhill and that, and everything you put into the deal. And I said to the other lawyer, you know, I try to pull it out of him and the guy said to me, well, he's just having trouble letting go. Yeah. Right. You know, which is, which is not uncommon, you know? He's not looking to renegotiate the price. He's not looking at whatever. There's just something, whatever. And, and the other lawyer didn't tell me this specifically, but he gave me the psychology of what was going on, which was really useful. And I said to my client, listen, I think if you do two things, you're going to get this deal done. Let me know if they work for you. One, can we make this guy chairman emeritus? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. Still has a role. Still has a, uh, you know, I mean, the truth is chairman emeritus doesn't really have any power or whatever, but right. But it has him. Stay connected to this company they created as a legacy, whatever. And I said, I also get the sense that he wants to not totally disconnect. He doesn't want to be an employee, doesn't want to be a consultant, doesn't want to be anything. And I feel like he also doesn't want to be home with the wife. I said, can you keep an office firm in the in the place? Yeah. And the client agreed, and that's what got the deal done. I, I am convinced without the guy having an office and a chair in America. I mean, you know, we're talking about a lot of money here. Everything else is fine, but that would have, if we didn't weren't able to identify that and solve that psychological need of his not to have some ongoing role and to have some place to go. Yeah. Like I was like, you know, I think it was 78, 79 years old. Right. But he wasn't ready. You know, he wasn't the kind of guy who wanted to be on the golf course every day. He wasn't going to travel the world. He didn't want to be home with the wife, whatever it was. Right. Right. And that's what got the deal done. I, I, that sounds incredibly familiar. I think that a lot of times the idea of getting a lot of money and winning by selling your business sounds really good. But then you start to think about the day-to-day stuff and that's when it gets real. I, this is a total sideline, but it's such a great story I have to share. I was lucky enough to be in a 50-person group that got presentation from General Colin Powell, who was one of the most amazing human beings I've, I've ever met and incredibly funny, which I didn't necessarily expect. And he told us the story about how the day after he ceased to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he woke up in the morning and he went downstairs and his wife looked at him and said, why don't you make breakfast? I've got errands. And then once he finished making breakfast and cleaning up breakfast, he had a meeting in New York. He went to Reagan Airport. And the day before he had, you know, he would go to Andrews and a plane would be waiting for him. Everyone would salute. He'd get on the plane and fly. He went to Reagan, stood in line at the security desk, got to the front, 
And the TSA officer said, you've been selected for extra screening. I may need you to lift your arms. And General Powell said to him, son, do you know who I am? And the TSA officer said, yes, General Powell, I'm going to need you to lift your arms. And he patted him down. And he just, his point was he had this realization that his life had changed and he hadn't actually thought about this in advance, right? I think this is what happens to founders is the idea of selling and winning sounds great. And then as it gets more real, right? The, the draft documents start to go through. You start to talk about the details and they go, wait a second. The day after this thing closes, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Are all these people that have been in my life for, am I going to see them? Are they going to, and they, and, and I would argue there's a corporate version of this for corporate divestitures, which is, wait a second, we don't have this thing to sell anymore. We don't have that associated with our brand. What are people going to think about the fact that we sold business? Is it going to have a bad impact? What are we going to do? We leverage those, that little team that is with this business to do this other stuff every once in a while, but they're going to go away. So I think there's the same sort of like reality sets in whenever you're selling a business, whether you're a big corporation or, or a founder, maybe it's a little more emotional for the founder, but it's that same thing where like. The concept of I sell it and I get big bag of money. Okay. Everyone's great with, and then there are all these little details that come along with that. And once you start to settle into the details and that's where a good advisor, a good deal maker goes, okay, let's figure out a way to make them happy by giving them something that costs us very little or nothing, an office and a title relatively low cost to us, but made a huge difference to him. Yeah. 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 No question. All right. So there's a couple of things, more things I want to cover. We're going to go a little longer than we often do on this podcast, just because you have so much to offer. Because I want to talk about what you're doing now and, and your investment criteria and what you're looking at. But before we get there, I know in the prior to going on here, we talked a little more about corporate divestitures and what we think, you know, and, and, and in, the, in this in these economic times and what you know yeah. what you think is going to happen specifically in that area. So let, let's talk about that a little bit, and then we'll switch over to to your current, you know, what, what you're focusing on now. Yeah. So I. I find this fascinating because it's almost like, and, and I'm probably guilty of this as well. It's almost like there's a collective amnesia <laughs> among at least people of our vintage, right? If you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you're 25 years old, you you're exempted from this because you haven't been through it. But for yeah. anyone who has been through up cycles and down cycles, it, it, it's almost like we, we rediscover them. And so in my experience. Every time there's a down cycle and, and I'm in the fall of 2022, I am 100% sure this happened. Every large company did their annual budget and did a strategic review. Volatility in the market must do a strategic review. And they all came up with businesses and operations and assets that are off strategy. And the reality is a lot of them have probably been off strategy forever, right? but in 2020 and 2021, when the market was going gangbusters and they were distracted by COVID, they were sort of left there, right? Like, yeah, it's off strategy, but it's not hurting anybody. Right. And, and so whenever you enter a volatile market and a down market, they revisit and you have this wave of divestitures. And then during a hot market, you probably have a wave of over acquisition, right? right? Where you didn't fully think through the strategic fit and that, that business during the next down market will be a candidate for, for jettisoning. So I think we're seeing that right now where, you know, it's almost like a clicking shift of mindset. Oh, down market, strategic review, let's get lean, let's get focused. 
and it creates all these assets that are out in the market. And the corporate development officers in the, in the large corporates have this challenge of it's, it's almost like unfair. Hey, Corey, you're responsible for selling stuff. We're going to wait until the market is really bad. And that's when we're going to tell you to sell everything. That's right. You, you, I know you got trained in your business school to buy low and sell high, but the way we, we mentally think about it is we sell low and we buy high. So all these corp dev officers are going through this wave of selling stuff. And getting back to our prior conversation, what do I really want out of this divestiture, right? If it's sufficiently large, yeah, I want money. But in a lot of cases, it's small enough that, I mean, I don't want to throw away money, but probably the purchase price is not the variable. So I have to go talk to the general manager. It's not as easy as you want me to sell it. I'll just find the highest price and we'll sell it. I actually have to go do what you described you doing with your clients. I have to go to, to the, or you might do with the large corporate general manager. What do you actually want out of this? Like, yeah. do you need licenses back of any of the tech? I've even seen situations where the general manager goes, you can't announce that we sold this business because that'll right. look embarrassing. So this is a good example of your, of your prior office and, and title. We'll cut a deal where we sell 97% of it, but we still own a portion and we're going to present it as we brought in a strategic partner into this exciting business, right? That way it doesn't look like we made a mistake. Right. All right. that, all that kind of stuff. But it's really a divestiture, which is totally the opposite. But, but yeah, but it's but, but exactly. But we're going to create this optic to make sure that we're not perceived that way. Um, yeah. So I think that we're, we're in a period now where every company is doing this exercise. Yep. They're figuring out how they sell stuff and they're trying to figure out how to execute on all that in a down market, which is extra tough, right? It's yeah. not only you're getting less price, but there are fewer buyers at the table. But listen, you know, obviously, you know, the flip side of that is that it's a good opportunity for buyers who are looking for the, you know, you know, if you're in a position in a down market to either have capital or frankly, you know, there's a little weird, weird down market. There's still a lot of money out there. <laughs> you know, there's still a lot of capital out there. I mean, plus the capital has gone up and, you know, yeah. whatever. And maybe people are underwriting deals a little more carefully. But there's, but, you know, capital has not dried up yet, at least when yeah. we're recording this in, in January. But, well, uh, think, but, but it creates always. opportunity on the buy side. Yeah, th there's always capital. It's just that either the capital wants a lower price or, you know, the capital is a little more selective. So, you know, during a hot market, maybe the capital widens their investment criteria and says, yeah, I can, I could do something in healthcare tech. And during down market, they get a little tighter. So you've got to be a little better about finding your buyers, but there is always a buyer and there's always a market clearing price. You, yeah. you may not like the market clearing price, but there always is one. That's right. All right. So Michael, you know, we, we've talked about all of this other stuff. Now I want to get to what you're doing, what you're doing now, right? With trajectory capital. So, you know, you have all these amazing perspectives, right? Like we said, you, you're a lawyer, you've been in corporate development, you've been a seller, you've been all this stuff. And now you're focusing more on the investment side. So first of all, just give us an idea of what are the type of types of businesses you're investing in? What types of deals? Is this, you know, where's your, is this, Where's the capital coming from? You know, is it, did you raise a fund? Uh, do you have outside you know, investors? You know, give, give us an idea of what's going on. Sure. So the foundation of this effort is my partner and I are all operators. We run businesses. We spent a lot of our time in different operating roles. And we like the process of helping a management team improve and scale their business. So, you know, we sort of reverse engineered from what do we enjoy doing? And that's what we enjoy doing. So how do we make that into a business? 
So we've been doing special purpose vehicles, which is basically one-off. It's like one-off private equity transactions. And now we are in the process, or by the time this airs, hopefully we will, we'll have raised a fund. And our fund is focused on what we think is a really interesting area in the market, which is enterprise technology and data businesses that are well-established. So this is not two people in a garage. They have good product market fit. Their clients like the product, but they are not growing at venture kind of rates. Mm -hmm. So they are not growing 500% a year. They're not rocketing upwards. They don't have massive valuations, but they're good quality. And frankly, I think there are an enormous number of these businesses out there, little software businesses, little data analytics businesses, and they're still small enough that they haven't figured out all the right operational stuff, right? And it's right. not a wrap on them, but if you're a 4 million revenue business, you probably have not perfected your sales ops, pricing, marketing, right. like me. And so we are looking for those kinds of businesses. They could be spun off of a large corporate that finds them to be not strategic. They could be a founder owned business where the founder, you know, wants to bring in more capital to try to grow. And, and our thesis is that those kinds of businesses aren't getting enough attention in the market. Um, yep. They're too small for private equity. Yep. And they're not high growth enough for venture capital, right? Venture capital wants something that can be a multi-billion dollar business. But right. as you and I know, the vast majority of businesses in this country, the successful ones are not going to be multi-billion dollar businesses. They're going to be fantastic businesses that grow from 4 million in revenue to maybe 30 or 40 million in revenue. And then they probably get acquired by name your company. That's the most likely avenue. And it's, in our view, an underinvested in and an underfocused in area. And, and we love the idea of finding these businesses and then working with the management team, whether that's if we buy the business, a management team we might put in, or if it's a founder, it's a management team that already exists, working with them to like actually wrench on the business. So, and, and this is something where, you know, I'll say there are a lot of funds that talk about doing operational work with, with companies. Yep. I think there is a wide variance of what those operational support look like right. from, you know, real operational support with a lot of detail to sort of symbolic, you know, here's a CEO we know will sit on your board. Right, um, right, exactly. I was seeing the same. Yeah, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with any of those as long as you're transparent about what you're doing and not doing. We're at the first end. So I aspire to be sitting in a conference room with the management team spending three days whiteboarding their ecosystem strategy or figuring out what their sales comp should be, right? As they're growing, how do we actually pay our salespeople effectively, is our pricing accurate? Should we be rethinking pricing? That's the kind of stuff. So that's, that's what we're doing is, is finding businesses like that, that we can work with and invest in. I love it. I love the positioning. I agree with you. It's an underserved market. And yeah, and frankly, you're right. I mean, it's, it's because, you know, so first of all, people who are less initiated to think, oh, you know, that everything's got to be a unicorn, right? Or oh, that's what you're right. always, you know, always shooting for. And the truth is there, there's a reason it's called a unicorn. <laughs> it's only, it's very few, right? Yeah. But there are so many other businesses that, yeah, do well. Yeah. And in, in terms of a classic financial buyer, financial investor, they're not going to get those kind of returns. And, and, and those, the, those, those kind of investors, those VC investors are, are not set up for those companies. They're, they're either too small. The growth rates are not high enough, or they really don't have that 
strategic value that they can provide in terms of the, you know, the operational, the consulting, the whiteboarding, all that stuff you're going to do. So I think you guys are well positioned for that. I love, I, I love, I love the model. And I think it's, 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 it's yeah, I think it's a great opportunity. And I, I will say, like most of my career, I can't say that this was created with, you know, just about sort of finding market opportunity. It's also, but I think this is important. It's where our passion is, right? That's right. You know, I, I would, I would never launch a fund to do something that I didn't enjoy on a day-to-day basis. So I, we, we were very careful to sort of reverse engineer from what do we want to spend our time over the next 10 years doing? Like literally on a, on a moment by moment basis, what do I want to be doing? How do we turn that into a business? You know, and, and, and I, I'm guardedly optimistic that that's what we've done, which is great because you reach a certain, you know, stage in your career where, you know, I think I've, I've paid my dues. I want to have fun. I want to really enjoy what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And listen, I do think there's a lot of criticism out there. A lot of people who really promote and, and, you know, say, follow your passion. And then there's a lot of this criticism of that. And I think it's a legitimate argument for somebody who's younger, has no experience, whatever, where you just say, you know, totally follow your passion and, and, and that's fine, but you want to also be realistic on whether that passion has market value and whether you can, you know, and, 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 and if, if you find, you know, likely not making money, then it might, then it might be okay, but you want to be aware of it, but it's a very different conversation when you get to a certain stage, right? Where you have that experience, that credibility, those relationships that, you know, all of that stuff. And yeah, I mean, like, I believe in this concept of highest and best use. And for me that I, and I've said this over and over again, there's three elements to it that, that, that people miss some of them. You know, one is it's got to be something you're passionate about. Well, actually, one is it's got to be something that you're great at, right? Yeah. But that's not enough because there's stuff that I'm great. Listen, I, I used to I used to draft a mean legal agreement. I never want to draft an agreement again. I have associates that do that. Right? Like I have, I have absolutely no interest in that. I'm good at it, but I have no passion for it anymore, whatever. And I haven't had for 20 years. But I, but I get great people who do that, right? So the second one is you have to be passionate about it. But a lot of people stop there. They're great at it and they're passionate about it, but it's also, and this, you know, based upon your background and experience, you have this as well. It's got to be highly leveraged. It's got to make a big difference. It's got to move the needle, right? And if you can combine those three things where it's, you know, where you're great at it, you love doing it and it, and it really moves the needle. It's highly leveraged. It makes a big difference. It has an impact. Then, you know, then, you know, what's better than that? I I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And then, you know, there's room in your life for hobbies. So there's stuff I do that I'm not particularly great at and right. I'm not sure moves the needle for anyone. That's, That's my right. hobby. I, That's you know, right. great. I'll, right. you know, I, I, I'll, I'll sing karaoke with my daughter. Nobody's paying for that, but that, yeah. you know, but for a career, I think you're absolutely right. It's those, it's those three things and they change over time, right? You, 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 there's a lot more that you're great at now than you were when you were 22. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Love it. All right, we need to wrap here, but is there anything else you want to say about the fund or the investment or whatever before I ask you my final two questions? No, no, I just I just say, you know, the, the only thing I'll throw out there is I've written a couple of books on M&A. Yes. And, and, and there are other books on M&A out there and, and they're your books. I think people should read more, listen to more of these podcasts. One of the things about deal-making, not just M&A, to your point, is that people are very isolated. Right. You know, if you're a salesperson in a large organization, you got 500 friends to your left and to your right. If you are the corporate development person or the strategic transactions person in a big company, you're probably alone or with a very small group. 
if if you're the founder, you are totally alone. And so I think that even more so than a lot of other functions, podcasts like this and books that are written by people who have a track record of experience are 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 really good tools because it's much harder to learn through your peers because oftentimes you don't have peers in your that's right. Love that. So if people actually want to find out, you know, more about your books and, you know, the, the trajectory capital or the fund or anything like that, where, where should they go? Yep. So they can go to my LinkedIn or they can go to michaelfrankel.com and that has my books, podcast, it'll have this one, stuff awesome. like that. Excellent. So Michael, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And mm-hmm. for me, that means everything from freedom around the world, from all, all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? So I think freedom for me is working with people, surrounding myself, but especially working with people that I like and respect and where I can be myself. I, I, I find it very hard to be in a work environment where I can't just sort of speak my mind and know that what I say is respected and respect the other person, be interested in what they have to say. And so I think, especially as I've gotten older, surrounding myself, whether it's work or my social life or, you know, my family, surrounding myself with people that make me feel comfortable just, you know, being myself, I I think is incredibly valuable. So I think that's probably the biggest like sense of freedom that I've been able to architect over time and now launching a business that, you know, where I decided who I was partnering with. Love it. Love it. Michael Frankel, thank for thank you for being such an amazing guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the Deal Quest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.